You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today, I have with me one of our longtime members and contributors, Matthias. And I don't think this is your first time on the podcast, is it? No, it's not. First time on the podcast was Dallas, Texas. Yeehaw. At CNU. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. So Matthias is a developer and Strong Towns advocate in his town of North Mankato, Minnesota. He's here to talk on our continuing conversation about household resilience. And specifically, I want to hear some about your home renovation project. Well, right. It's almost disingenuous to call me a developer because the only property that I'm developing is the house that I live in. But Well, aren't you also like a computer developer as your day Oh, job? I'm technically a user experience designer, but... I mean, whatever. To anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's probably the same thing to them, so it doesn't really matter. Well, so the big question that we're kind of framing this household resilience conversation around is how can individuals and families plan their lives in a way that mitigates financial emergencies and maximizes happiness? So what is your initial reaction to that question? How have you applied that in your life? In preparation for this conversation, I was thinking about it today, and I was thinking about all the contingencies and and unknowns that go into living a life uh, and especially having a family. And I'm going to frame this around my family. So I am married and I have one child currently. The way that I kind of see it is that if you live in a two-income household with children or even without children, I think that your goal should be that one person could stop working and you would be okay. Like somebody could get fired or laid off and your household would not fall into complete chaos. And the way that I kind of think about it is at the small developer boot camp, John Anderson, he was talking about, you know, what kind of property that you want to buy first. And the the property he's he always suggests are something like a triplex or fourplex. And he says, because if you if you can't fill one of those units, then you have three or two other units to fall back on. And so it's kind of the same thing with a household. So if you are living paycheck to paycheck with both of your, with both people in the household working, then you're not really resilient because there's a disconnect there. And I know that not everybody makes a ton of money, et cetera, et cetera, but you need to, or, it would be my recommendation. I'm not going to tell anybody what they need to do, but that you scale your life to meet the potential disaster of somebody leaving your household. So, yeah, that's certainly a great ideal. Right. And that's, I think that's the key word. It's, it's an ideal. I asked to be on the podcast for the people that are listening because I was, I was listening to Kia's last week and she was talking about how she paid off $25,000 worth of student loans in a year. And I was struck by that because that's exactly what my wife and I did. We paid off $60,000 worth of student loans in four years. And it was because we decided that we were going to, you know, eat rice and beans and 
live as cheaply as possible and throw all of our extra money at paying off our student loans because we realized that creating a, a stable base was the, the foundation for happiness in the future. My wife, after we had our child, she decided that she didn't want to work. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And who am I to say that that shouldn't be the case? So she left her job and she's been uh, happily employed as a, as a stay-at-home mom ever since. And the, the reason that, again, we we're able to do that is because we took a hard line on debt. You know, we were going to get rid of our debt. And then when we bought a house, you know, my mortgage is for about $80,000. So the house was a complete pile of crap when we bought it. You know, <laughs> when we first bought it, the first night that we spent there together as a couple, we were putting in the bathroom. And so we had been living with friends just uh, separately. This was in October. I came down with a really bad cold. I thought it was completely unfair to uh, my friends who were my hosts at the time to stay at their house sick. Like that was just not cool. And so Sarah, my wife, she said, well, I'm not going to just like let, I'm not going to abandon you and let you stay at the house. That's, you know, no, no toilet or anything. It's just a terrible place. Like I'm not going to let you stay there by yourself. So the first night we ever stayed at our house, we slept in our completely 100% uninsulated attic in October. We woke up and it was 45 degrees up there. You know, that's what we slept in, just on a mattress on the floor. And at the time, it really looked bleak. You know, it was like, what did we get ourselves into? But now looking back, it's a pretty funny memory. Did you actually. get the toilet working pretty soon, I hope? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing we had to do. It's like, well, you gotta, yeah. you can't have a, can't live here without a toilet. So yeah, that was the first, uh, that was numero uno that we did. Okay, so let's go back and talk about the paying off your debt. Because like I said on Kia's podcast, I'm personally fascinated by this because uh, my family has debt and someday I plan to go to grad school, pick up some more debt probably. So was that when you had your house or did you pay off no, the loans this before was, um, buying the house? We, we paid off our loans before we bought the house. We probably paid off our loans maybe, I want to say like nine months-ish before we bought our house. Our down payment wasn't huge. We did, I think, 5%, so at like four grand or something. So it was, it was balancing paying off student loans with saving money as well. And the, I guess the way that we attacked it, my, my goal was always that we were going to pay the variable interest loans first to get technical because you don't know what's going to happen. So if a, a company goes under some restructuring of loans or whatever, they have the right to say, we're going to jack your student loans. We're just going to, you signed up for this. We can send your loans to the moon if we wanted to. So granted that the variable interest loans are usually lower at the offset than the fixed interest loans, there's still a greater risk. My plan was always, let's pay our variable interest loans and then let's get onto the other stuff. It's important to note too, that you don't want to go too hard into paying off any kind of debt that you have because debt it can be healthy. Debt is a, if you're managing it, it's a great way to maintain your credit score and it's a great way to help you budget. You know, some people just, honestly, if they get money, they don't necessarily know what to do with it if they're not putting it towards something. You might not want to throw all your money into debt because then that drains your savings really low and you don't, you know, if something happens, then you're, it's great that you don't have any debt, but it's terrible now that you can't pay for this thing that you're probably going to have to accrue debt for. So, you know, we had um, kind of a, a sort of weird extended family situation at the time. It made it 
a little bit easier to probably pay off our our student loans, just in the sense that um, we had a good situation. We we were very blessed to have a good situation. You know, right out of college, um, the first apartment that we ever stayed well, lived in together was uh, five hundred fifty dollars a month, I think, and everything was included except for electricity. So we had you know twenty bucks a month that we had to pay, and. Now, granted, to be fair, Sarah and I never made, for the first, I'd say, year and a half of our marriage at least, we never made over $12 an hour. But it was just about making sure that we had our priorities in order. Like, we still have the car that we had when we got married. And that's it's a 1999 Saturn SL. And it was just like, we paid 2500 bucks for it. And we, yeah, we didn't buy a car until we found out she was pregnant. We have two cars now, but for the first four years of our marriage we only had one car and then were you able to like commute in other ways or i mean it seems like mankato's kind of car oriented place or did you like carpool to work well neither of us live terribly far from work so i the problem with me biking to work is that i have like a <laughs> it's like a 200 foot hill that's very it's pretty steep Seriously, I swear to everybody listening, I would bike to work every single day if it were flat. Because it's not that far. It's like two miles. But it's this giant freaking hill that I'm just like, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to bike to work. And then it's like, yeah, I don't really feel. And then you get there and you're sweaty and gross and it's just like ruins your day. But my wife, when she was working, she was working at a bank and we never lived more than um, a mile, I would say from where she worked. She walked to work. Yeah, she walked to work every day. We didn't get a uh, second car until we started working on the house and I bought a I bought a truck for $900 to help me haul stuff, you know, back and forth, lumber and whatnot to fix the house. So we've always driven just really cheap cars and that helps immensely. Listeners of the Strong Town podcast or readers of Strong Town will know that housing and transportation are ostensibly one of the largest costs that a household incurs in in modern day society. I guess I got this from my dad. My dad never, ever bought a new car, ever, once. He would always buy used cars, and sometimes they were hits and sometimes they were misses, but he was willing to take the gamble because your tabs are way cheaper. Your insurance is way cheaper, you know. Maybe it burns a little more gas, but we weren't, you know, we never really, (laughs) we never had the 40-minute commute or whatever, so, and it hasn't been a ridiculous amount of repair costs? No, actually, I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised with how little we've had to repair um, our cars. You know, here and there, we've had to do some stuff like, I would say we probably averaged $500 a year in repairs. Um, so nothing ever way, way major. To be honest, you know, I'm a, I'm a DIY guy, but I will not DIY cars because I just... Just don't want to get into it, you know? I just don't want to know because I want to just, I want to take it to my mechanic who's awesome and just know that it's done right and never have to worry about it again. Cause there's one thing like, okay, your pipe breaks and it's like, oh no, the basement's wet. And it's like, oh no, like I'm traveling 70 down a highway and my wheel fell off and now yeah. I'm dead. Yeah, true. <laughs> so it's like, it's for me, it's always worth it to just, uh, to just pay the money to, to fix your car. So let's talk more about DIYing in terms of your house. First of all, why did you decide to buy a house in the first place? And then what, why that house and why like this DIY type project? Well, here's step number one in becoming a resilient household is move to the Midwest, honestly. 
because it's like it's so cheap here compared to everywhere else. And it's, I mean, and nice. Yeah, well, I think it's great. Um, at least in Mankato, we're a town of the base population is about sixty thousand, but we add anywhere between like fifteen and seventeen thousand kids every year because we have a major college. Actually, we've got four colleges in town. We've got one major state university, and then we have um, Bethany, where I went, and then we have two like smaller technical colleges. So rents just like get completely overinflated here because there's such a demand during the school year. And so when you're looking at it, you go, okay, well, I could spend $800 a month in rent while paying utilities. And basically, uh, the only thing I'm paying for is not having the liability of to, of having to fix a house. And so to us, like we knew that, you know, a family was not far off in the future. And, um, it, it, I guess it just was kind of the right time. And to me, I, I kind of put my foot down. I was like, we should buy a fixer upper because it would be great to have a cheap mortgage. It would be great to learn how to do stuff so that in the future, we don't have to pay people to, to fix our stuff. And then we can just roll from there. And that's exactly what we did. And we looked at, you know, we looked at a couple of houses and no, no house that we ever looked at was more than I would say $120,000. And which to, I'm sure to, you know, Andrew Price right now listening is probably like. He lives in Hoboken, New Jersey. Right. Yeah. Ho- right. Exactly. basically New York. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or anybody out in San Francisco right now, they're like, wow, that's would like I kill for $120,000? No. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Finally, we found this house and. It was really weird because I, I consider myself a pretty, um, I don't know, logical person. Like, I'm not very emotion-driven. But it was weird because when I was buying buying a house, I just, like, there were two or three houses I turned down just because, like, it didn't feel right. And, like, Sarah was, she was like, well, this house is nice. Like, it's got everything that we need. And I'm like, it just doesn't feel right. And then we walked into this, like, pile of a house that we bought. And I was like, yes, this is it. Like, I so want to do this. Like, I can totally see it. And so then we spent, you know, the next, um, well, we're still like, we've got some little crap that we've got to fix on the main floor. So it had an unfinished attic, which we're planning on adding dormers to, and that'll be two more bedrooms and another bathroom up there. So the goal is at the end to have a four bedroom, two bathroom house. And right now it's a two bedroom, one bathroom house, and we can't even fit like a queen size bed in our house. Here's another one. Okay. This is a perfect example of how I live my life. Maybe TMI, but I have been sleeping in the same bed since like eighth grade, like the same, not the same mattress, but the same like bed frame. My when they moved, like my parents were like, do you want this bed? And I was like, I'll take it. We sleep in a, what's the one down? Double. Queen twin. Double. I hope it's not a twin for two people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. We sleep in a double and sometimes our son joins us in bed. It gets a little cramped, but we just make do, you know, and that's the thing. It must have partially been my upbringing because, you know, I was, we have a family of six, four kids. Uh, I have two brothers and a sister and my dad was always a, a parochial school teacher and that does not pay well. I mean, the, for the church that we worked for, it was just, it was not good. My mother had uh, rheumatoid arthritis. She got diagnosed when I was about four. And so she was, there was one year I remember that she worked full time. And she would maybe sub here and there. Uh, she was a teacher as well. And so we always just grew up. I mean, we weren't, we weren't poor, but we, we never, if we were poor, 
the kids never knew it. We never knew that we, things were bad, you know, and it was just, we would make do. And if we didn't need it, we didn't buy it. You know, we shopped at thrift stores. We bought secondhand stuff. I don't want to sound judgmental or uh, condescending or anything, but it, looking back on it, it's an incredible blessing to be brought up in a household that doesn't have a lot of money, but uses the money that they have effectively. I think it, it sends a message to children that materials are not worth it. In the, I mean, you cannot take it with you. The things that matter rise to the top when you don't have a lot of money because it's, you know, what are the important things? You know, that's how I live my life. You know, I, I don't make a ton of money and, you know, it, yeah, like it would be great if my wife worked full time and we had her salary, but you know how nice it is to, to come home and just like to come home to a family. I know it sounds kind of, you know, 50s nostalgia or something like that, you know, but it, it's super satisfying because, because, it, you know, the things that really matter to you are, are there, you know, and you don't need the other stuff. I feel like I've gone through a lot of self discovery because I remember when we lived in our apartment, the one we lived in before we bought our house. And it was seriously without fail. Every night I would come home and I would like drink and I would play Halo. And I look back on those days and I'm like, I'm a worthless piece of crap. Like you just like, what was I do? Like there was nothing beneficial about that. It was literally time just vomited into the ether. Like there was nothing good about it whatsoever. Like, yeah, it was fun at the time, but now it just, I guess it puts things into perspective for you. For the most part. So in working on your house, did you have all those skills beforehand or did you have someone to oh, teach you Lord, or no. you Oh my God. How did that work? Okay. I did not know which end of a hammer to pick up for the most part before I bought this house. And this is funny. Growing up, my dad, he was the poor intellectual, you know, like Dostoevsky or something, you know, he was an English teacher. He was, my dad's an incredibly smart person. But he just never, I guess, the DIY thing never really appealed to him. It wasn't something that he wanted to do or learn or anything like that. And so growing up, I never knew how to do any of this stuff. So I'm a big believer in trial by fire for the most part. Um, so we bought this house, signed on the dotted line. I said, well, guess what? This has to happen. I have to learn how to do this because A, I don't have the money to pay somebody how to do this or to do this for me. And B, it has to get done. Like I can't live without a toilet. To put yourself into an uncomfortable situation gives you a, an immense ability to grow personally and to grow, you know, your, your skill set for the most part, because you have to figure it out. It's sink or swim. I didn't know how to do anything. And I, I was very lucky to have, um, a guy. I met him doing my kind of, uh, political stuff around town and him and I had very similar views and he was, um, he, he's a historic restoration guy. And so he's built several properties from the ground up from scratch. And so he knew some stuff like how to do certain things. And then he could point me to people that knew how to do other things. Uh, so like my plumber, my plumber was a retired guy and he worked under the table, 40 bucks an hour cash. And the cheapest non-union plumber in Mankato is $90 an hour. This guy too, he said, I don't want to like, crap on millennials too much, but he, he basically, he wanted me to work alongside of him because he didn't really think that a lot of people my age want to go into the 
into the trades. And I don't want to be a plumber, but I want to know how plumbing works so I can know if I need to call a plumber or if I can fix it myself. You know, if my pipe breaks, I can fix that. If, you know, like my sewer line collapses underneath my house, I think I need to call somebody. I had to replace every water line in my house because it was all galvanized steel. I replaced it all with copper. Well, me and my plumber did. And I learned a bunch about how, you know, the water system of a house works. And then too, you know, this is, if anybody is listening, you want to take one thing away from this is that electricians are rarely worth the money. Electrical work is so easy. It's just intimidating because it's electrical. And it's like, oh, I could burn my house yeah. down. And it's like, well, right. But there's so many fail safes in place. And people who create electrical items like outlets and circuit breakers and stuff, their goal is to make it easier for electricians to do this stuff. So they are constantly figuring out ways to, you know, make things easier. Just, you know, your circuit breaker, your breakers just clip in there. All you got to do is push them. That's all they do. And they just hook up and your outlets are just screws that you just have to tighten a wire around. And so it's, it's stuff like this that you would never, you would never know how it works unless you've done it. So I, you know, I rewired both my bedrooms, my kitchen and everything. And you just have to know, you have to learn code. That's basically it. You got to know what needs dedicated circuits and, you know, how the code works right now. And that's just what we did. You know, we would read, we'd read the code book or we, you know, we'd go on YouTube and we'd find somebody talking about how the electrical code works and everything. Did you enjoy this process? Of learning oh, skills? yeah. Yes. I, I mean, it was, it's love hate because it's like you want it done. And there are times when you're just like, F it. I just want to pay somebody to do this because I'm frustrated. And then there are other times when you're like, I'm so glad I know how this works because I can just, I can fix this. And it's not intimidating. Nothing in my house is intimidating to me. I think that's a, it's a huge, Huge, huge blessing because I, I, I know so many people who wouldn't even like, you know, they'll call a plumber because they've got a, they've got a loose toilet handle or something. But my mother is the perfect example of this. She calls a repairman for pretty much everything because she just doesn't know how any of it works. To which I, I get super frustrated because then I go and visit and I'm like, why didn't you just wait for me to get here? I would have fixed this for you. So some of it has to do with your network and like who you know and, um, who's willing to help you. Cause I remember it, when I was redoing my bathroom, <laughs> I know this, this retired guy, he goes to my church, nice married couple. And they've always been like family to us. They've been super kind. He really loves working on stuff like this. So one day he shows up at like eight thirty AM. I go to work. I get home at around five and he's leaving. And he had like shimmed out my entire wall in my bathroom and hooked up a bunch of electrical and as he's leaving, he goes, thanks for letting me do this. And I was like, literally anytime you want to come and just work for an entire day. And like, yeah, there are little things like that that have, you know, obviously not everybody has access to or not everybody will experience it the same way. I guess that's just life situation. So, you know, we've had some people that have really helped us along the way, but we've done tons of work ourselves for sure. It's very satisfying at the end of the day to know that you did it, especially when it's all done and you like like being in your house. You mentioned earlier you are a new-ish father. How has having a kid changed your outlook on like household resilience? Yeah, so my son is six months old. Um, well, he's coming up on seven months old. It's kind of sappy, but like, I mean, all your priorities change. So I, I just recently got a new job, but my the job I've, I've had up until now has been 
in my last article on my blog, I described it as uh, like office space, like literally the movie Office Space. Like I just show up and I sit in my cubicle and it's just intellectually draining just because I don't have a lot of work. And like it's just very, you know, fluorescent lights and you're just staring at a computer screen. It's blah, blah. But you have to grind at some point in your life to support the things that make you happy. And it's like, I'm not just going to up and quit my job knowing that I have to have, you know, I have to make sure my child has health care or my child has even just an income to, to pay for food or heat or whatever. And so it switches your priorities in so much. I mean, you stop thinking about yourself and you start thinking about everything else. But at the same time, you're looking for new ways, at least I am, you're looking for new ways to make sure that your household can survive. And so, you know, I have picked up a job. I do like freelance property management for some people. So I manage these properties, which brings in a little bit of extra income, you know, and I don't like if I, if Sarah and I didn't have kids and she was still working, I wouldn't need to do this job by any means. But every time I can just acquire just a little bit more money and put it away or make sure that it's there to pay for, uh, you know, the roof project that we want to do, et cetera. It's worth it because it'll, it'll make for a, a better future for me and my hopefully more than one children. For me, it's like, it's the best because you, it really is. It's almost liberating not having to worry about yourself because I think that some people just get lost in their own minds and they say, I don't want to give a commentary on society as a whole, but there's kind of a vein of nihilism, in my opinion, running through at least millennials in the United States. It's like, what's the purpose of life? You know, why are we here? And I see it all around. And I, you know, it's, I, I think kind of the embodiment is BuzzFeed style media where it's like, take a quiz to find out what kind of like salad you are. <laughs> it's like, this not like none yeah. of this matters, you know? Yeah, you're right. That's like at least 30% of the internet right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I guess it just switches your priorities. And what I was saying about it being liberating is like, I don't like who gives a crap what happens to me. You know, like if I have to work this terrible job, but I get to come home to a kid that like smiles every time he, he looks at me, it's, it's worth it. And you're, you're actually giving your life purpose. I think that this kind of equates to, uh, strong towns overall. Um, when you look at a lot of the societies and the, the, at least the cities that we've built, a lot of them feel entropic because the only, the, literally the only goal that so many of our cities seek to accomplish are capitalist ends, essentially. Like, how much money can we suck out of this building and this piece of land? It's all about the overhead and until we move on or our business goes up and how much you know, money can I make out of it? And so when we go back and we look at the great cities of the world, even villages you know, that are surrounded by, they were built to serve like a castle, let's say. People weren't necessarily concerned about money or the, the bottom line, there was a higher vision. You know, it was for the queen or the king, or it was for the empire, or it was, you know, it was for the, the civilization that we've, we've built. And so now I think that we're just kind of facing this, this world where we don't have necessarily, um, it's the kind of one of the cruxes of freedom is that you, no one is there to tell you what to do. No one's there to say, <laughs> you know, go, go work on this beautiful castle. And, and I think honestly, some people can't handle that degree of, of liberation. 
and they just kind of the descent into madness. I mean, this plays perfectly into the uh, the opioid crisis that we see around the Rust Belt is that these guys have nothing to do, and then they get on painkillers and they get like, and they've got nothing to pull them away from it. I think it kind of leaks into households, and sadly, you know, it just kind of it can drive some people really, really crazy. Where the only the only thing that they can find uh, any kind of entertainment out of or any type of <laughs> i guess platituding is uh taking buzzfeed quizzes or you know abusing you know we're at a a record level of alcohol consumption in the united states things like that you know I, again like i'm not trying to be preachy or anything but i i think that people are intimidated by families and they're intimidated by settling down but i think a lot of people out definitely there definitely in our generation really, really, at least Right. And, and I, I mean, we have every right to be, you know, mm-hmm. we saw all the crap that happened. We saw people lose their houses. We saw people not get jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But if people would maybe take the dive and actually go into having a family or go into a little bit of, of settling, they, they might find themselves happier. But now that takes a, a crazy level of introspection. You know, you can't just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to go marry a chick and Get get her pregnant, and I'm going to have a family. You know, you can't just do that. <laughs> Wouldn't be fulfilling if that was all you did, anyway. <laughs> know thyself. You know, really is the is the basis for a, a strong a strong household. But I will say this um, to kind of undermine it a little bit. I've got a, a couple of friends who kind of did the thing after college where they were just like, I'm going to travel and I'm going to like experience the world, and I'm going to be like, I'm not going to really worry about my debt right now, and my student loans. And I'm like, if you do you, like, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But know that you may be setting yourself up for disaster in the future. Like you might, you might get back from your like whirlwind three-year tour of Asia and be like, oh, now I have to get a job and like do the boring stuff. To me, like if you experience the highs, like right away in life and like you get just jacked on experiences, which is a lot of people are seeking, like this is why people travel, because they want to have unique experiences. So if you get super jacked on experiences right away in life, and then you come home, and you're like, yeah, uh, you have to work nine to five and have a 401k and enter numbers into an Excel spreadsheet all day, it can be really difficult to readjust. And so like, I really, really recommend grinding, like just going through at some point in your life, just going through something that you hate and just sticking it out for a long time or as long as you can to give yourself a stable footing in the future. And I think that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. You know, my mortgage, like I said, is like $560 a month and I'm going to stay at my kind of boring job to pay that down so that when I'm 40 or whatever, it might not, ha- I might not have to worry about it as much. And now granted, like Yellowstone could erupt tomorrow. I get that. It's not really an argument for not uh, having structure and et cetera. And I, I mean, this is, again, my personality. I feel like I'm a structured person and I want to, but I think some people out there are that way too. And they might just not know it until somebody tells them like, Hey, you should give this a shot. They might not want to be the person to do it. So I did want to get back to asking a little bit more about 
being a parent and how does that change your perspective on like strong talents issues? Cause I mean, we have a lot of parents in our readership and listenership and a topic that comes up occasionally, you know, when you're a parent, all of a sudden your concerns about walkability aren't just like, can I get from point A to point B, but like, can I push a stroller and be certain that my kid is going to be safe? They can't like run across the street the way I can when a car is coming suddenly. So what are your thoughts on parenthood and urbanism? I'll rewind a little bit. So when my wife worked at the bank and the bank from my house is probably a block and a half, but our downtown, the downtown has a strode running right through it. It's fi- literally five lanes and it's in like a little downtowny area. And it's, it's quite a cross, but I thought about that all the time, you know, and it was a four way stop right at the end. And Sarah would always walk when everybody's trying to get to work. And I thought like there are plenty of days that I was worried about her getting hit. And subsequently, like as a pregnant woman, that would be terrible. And now granted, she doesn't have to make that walk anymore, but it does things like that just stick with you. I mean, it, I, I think the one thing I would want for my children is that they be brought up with both their parents around and urbanism plays into that. Like statistically, like right now as 28 year olds, our best chance of dying is being in a car accident. And, you know, leaving a child behind because you died because we've set up a system that's so stupid and broken. Like, it makes me mad. And it's just, it does. It definitely puts a new perspective on things when you have a kid because you're not viewing everything in the context of yourself. You're viewing the, you're viewing this in the context of your child. And then also because you have your child, you gain a level of empathy for parents with other children. And so you're thinking about the same thing that the greatest fear that would happen to you. Now you don't want that to be inflicted upon anybody else either. Obviously, urbanism makes it far easier to just accomplish your your daily tasks, which would be nice to just be able to walk to a grocery store or anything like that. Now, Grant, we live in a 1920s neighborhood, so all our streets are very small and the houses are, you know, we've got 40 foot lots or whatever, and we're close to parks and we... I would never fear my child playing in our street, at least. But in the future, I mean, it's going to weigh on me for sure. And just, I think this is part of the problem with being woke (laughs) on urban planning issues, you know? It's like, oh, everything sucks and it's super broken. And it's going to be crazy difficult to fix. But that's why we do what we do. You know, this is why we're part of Strong Towns is because we want to leave a better world. That that was was the other part I was going to say. I've had this discussion with Chuck a couple of times and I'm a, I'm a guy that really believes in, you know, creating beautiful places and, and places that are worth maintaining. And that's another thing about living in Sprawlsville or having Sprawlsville connected to your city is the fact that you don't want to pass any of this stuff on. I don't give a crap if my kid never steps foot in Walmart, you know, or never goes to the mall. Like, oh no. You know, he missed out on such a uh, defining experience of his childhood. No, I don't care about any of that. But, like, I want him to take pride in where he lives. I want to be able to, like, say that we built something decent and we passed it on to the next generation so that they could build off of it, too. So that they could, you know, they could add their own flavor to the the city. But that's kind of not the direction we're going, to be honest. No, I think that is a really good way to think about this. I don't have children, but someday, hopefully. Yeah, not just thinking about why these issues are important 
to parents because of their individual, you know, child's daily life, but also because of like generations to come and why we need to build places that are going to last and be valuable for, for everybody, including kids and their kids and so on. So, well, and too, just from the financial aspect, yes. it's like, oh, well, sorry, you've got a, a, all those, you know, that failed industrial park. Yeah. You got to pay for all the sewer line repairs to that. Sorry. <laughs> I tried to tell them, but they didn't listen to me. Yeah. So. Well, Matthias, thanks for being on the podcast and sharing this winding conversation with a lot of different important topics covered. So, and it's good to hear an update on your house. It sounds like you guys are basically ready to go. Yeah. My house is primo. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Matthias. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.